0: Hey, are you interested in promoting your product, organization, or thoughts to a wide-ranging audience of educators, business leaders, education leaders, and more? This could be your spot. Yep, imagine your ad right here. Find out more about expanding your reach and catalyzing the future with like-minded leaders by clicking the link in the show notes or emailing jessica at gettingsmart.com. Let's get back to the show. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. I'm Tom Van Ark, and today we're talking with my friend, uh, Michael Levine. He's the SVP of Noggin. That's Nickelodeon's direct-to-consumer interactive learning service. Uh, Michael's a longtime friend and colleague. He is unflappably pleasant and unusually brilliant. And Michael, what a treat to have you on the podcast.
1: Oh, my gosh, Tom Van Der Ark. such a pleasure to be here. That was way too kind, but let's let's get into it.
0: We, Michael, we, we've had this um, 20 or 25 years of um, beautiful and unusual, um, sometimes unforeseen uh, intersections in education and, and technology. And I, I just, uh, I recently learned about one that I didn't even know about. Um, when, when I uh, joined the Gates Foundation, when we were just in formation, actually, I joined the Gates. Library Foundation in 1999 and learned that Bill and Melinda, um, were really big fans of, uh, Andrew Carnegie and of, uh, Vartan Gregorian, who's leading the Carnegie uh, Corporation. And, uh, they had learned so much from them. Um, and they, they had launched in 1998, um, 98 a giant library project to wire America's, uh, Libraries. Um, did uh, did you and Carnegie have anything to do with uh, with influencing that?
1: Yeah, thanks, Tom. I I think we may have. Vartan um, Gregorian uh, was the, as you suggested, the president of Carnegie Corporation beginning at some point in 1997. I have been on the staff there since 1990, leading the early childhood development work as well as some of the school reform and um, you know, public media initiatives. And um, I got a call one day soon after Barton had begun at the corporation to say that he was having a meeting with um, Patty Stein Cipher, uh, as well as um, Mrs. Gates to discuss Andrew Carnegie's work and his legacy in having built, you know, literally thousands of libraries uh, as part of his initial philanthropy. And uh, would I have some interest in advising what he had to say um, to the uh, foundation executives? I mean, Gates was very, very young, as you suggest, at that point, as a important philanthropy, and everyone was looking to them to get a sense of what they might do. And um, Vartan, with some you know, help from me, um, to be honest, uh, and he didn't need much prompting because he had been the man who had turned around the New York Public Library um, in the Uh, midst of the New York City fiscal crisis in the late 80s into the early 90s. And so libraries were certainly on his mind. But he uh, asked me to give him some ideas, and he pitched these ideas to um, the Gates Foundation. I had the privilege of writing out four pages of what a national initiative might look like to modernize the libraries and to do kind of a modern-day Andrew Carnegie-ish initiative. And I'm proud to say that Patty and Melinda Gates and others uh, loved what vartan um, uh, gave them. And um, no credit to me because it was an obvious idea, but uh, they, they they activated it. And from time to time, they'd check in with Vartan and he'd check in with me. And um, I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars later, the Gates had their first major programmatic initiative that has served tens, if not hundreds of millions of, of families, you know, since. So I think it's a good example of, um, situational leadership and the ability to begin something new with, um, sort of a modernizing of, uh, a tried, but you know, a tried and true philanthropic approach. So I was proud to be a small part of it and to tell this story for the first time on your podcast.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's so exciting to make that connection. Um, when, when I joined the Gates Library Foundation, it was uh, Patty and a program officer and a, a couple of public relations uh, folks and 150 librarians. Um, they, they staffed up to actually wire um, every library in America and to install computers. Gateway Computer had a whole uh, plant set up just for uh, libraries, uh, library computers. And uh, those librarians... Um, went library to library, state uh, by state, ar- around the United States, wiring libraries um, in in the late '90s and uh, through the first uh, five years of uh, of the Knots. And
1: yeah, one thing you can say about it, Tom, start to interrupt is, especially this last year, you know, you don't know when a, a philanthropic initiative is going to be prescient. Like at Carnegie, we used to talk about like the study that Gunnar Myrdal did in nineteen forty-eight about you know race and, and poverty in America was written off by the foundation as you know a noble study. I mean, it became the basis for Brown versus Board of Ed along with the other you know research that you know was done about educational you know injustice. This initiative, some twenty years ago, by the Gates Foundation, can you imagine? our lives during the pandemic or the lives of folks who didn't have access to the world's information if, you know, if we didn't have libraries and Google search and the world's information at people's fingertips. So, I mean, it just was one of the pieces of the infrastructure that we needed to get through the pandemic successfully uh, was, was, was laid in place right then and there.
0: So in the fall of 1999, uh, I worked uh, w- with you and Michelle K.O. to stand up High Schools for a New Century. That was the really the first um, uh, large uh, small schools project in, in America, an effort to try to transform struggling schools in, uh, in New York City. Um, you, you left uh, Carnegie and, and ran Rob Reiner's foundation uh, f- for a few years, and then uh, had the chance to lead the um, uh, efforts at the Asia Society. Our, our next real intersection. What, what was attractive about uh, what what Tony was doing at uh, uh, Asia Society?
1: Yeah, so um, I had the pleasure of working with a, a team at Carnegie that um, really cared about. Um, both social impact and social justice, but also about building a shared future that is about global education and the connections between what Americans were doing and, you know, what the rest of the world was was up to. And um, Vivian Stewart, who was one of my colleagues and a key executive at Carnegie, and Tony Jackson, who many of your um, listeners might know for his work on... Um, um, small schools, the reinvention of middle schools through uh, a vision called Turning Points, uh, as well as the work that he's done on social justice and uh, intergroup relations, came together at Asia Society because we wanted to continue some of the work that we'd done philanthropically to actually be more engaged in transforming schools and other institutions. And so the team there met you as part of our mission to teach about Asia and other world regions, languages, and cultures, this was in the post-9/11 moment, where you and your listeners might recall there was an enormous amount of xenophobia, uh, an enormous uh, amount of othering, um, Islamic children and families, but other folks who are you know different from the from the mainstream, and we thought that it was a moment to help Asia society, which is sort of a unique cultural um, resource, but had not done a lot of work with with kids of color, with kids in need um, to kind of transform some of the deep knowledge that Asia society had uh, around language and culture and and use it to to influence uh, school reform. So um, you were, I believe, a program director. Um, leading the education work at uh, at Gates. And uh, you had this big idea to invest a billion dollars in the creation of small schools. And New York City was one of your uh, allies as uh, the new chancellor there, Joel Klein, wanted to uh, transform um, what I would call sort of a calcified um, uh, school system that needed a dose of innovation and change. And so working um, with you and Jim Shelton and Other folks who were on the Gates staff at that point, and Joel Klein and Kristen Kane and Garth Harries and other people who were members of the Children First Committee uh, in New York, Um, they recruited us to create some new small schools with an international theme for um, new schools in New York. And then we built with support, generous support from Gates and many others a whole schools network, which... Uh, it's called the International Study School Network. And there are hundreds of international schools, you know, that exist, you know, not, not just because of that stimulus, but because of the interest in teaching about other world regions, languages and cultures. So that was, uh, I think, a really, really important, you know, time. So 20 years later or so, there's still a, a movement to globalize and to internationalize public schools with, um, you know, dual language immersion programs, some in Mandarin um, some in Arabic, you know, some in in Spanish, of course. Um, that was a big part of the initiative, you know, back then. But also, you know, learning about the rest of the world is a critical part of creating a shared future for all of our kids, especially now.
0: I'll I'll note uh, for our listeners that uh, Asia Society still has really great resources on uh, global education and global competencies. They have a beautiful set of design principles that we'll, uh, that we'll link to in the show notes. We actually uh, accessed those um, last month for a, a school design that we're working on. So it's um, really a terrific legacy, both in terms of a great network of schools and uh, great resources available globally. Michael, and in 2007, uh, you, you became the executive director at the Joan Gans Cooney Center. Um, Better known for uh, Sesame Street, one of its uh, programs. What was attractive to you about uh, about Sesame Street and the and the Cooney Center? Yeah,
1: it was sort of a return to my early childhood roots. I have a background in developmental psychology and 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 social policy, and trained with one of the great developmentalists of the past century, Uri Bronfenbrenner, as an undergraduate. So I had an interest in my portfolio, both in Um, My jobs before Carnegie as a mayoral aide in New York City, but also at Carnegie were in the early childhood, you know, field, but also um, was an extension of the work that I had done at Asia Society since Sesame really is the longest street in the world. It really is a place that cares about not only um, ABCs and one, two, threes for domestic consumption, but very much involved in creating global education resources from the work in sub-Saharan Africa around HIV/AIDS prevention, to the peace and conflict resolution work in the Middle East, to a whole range of different things in in uh, in, 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 a- in in South Asia. So, um, I was asked to form a new r and center and lab, and to join the senior team at Sesame in 2007. It was a time where. The iPhone was just about to be launched. The iPad had not yet been launched. And these new media is what we called them back then, and I was VP for new media as well as executive director for education at Asia Society. So we're beginning to think about um, the kind of work, Tom, that you've been pioneering for the last 20 years. What is the new digital promise? Um, And so the team at Sesame at that point wanted a new unit. Uh, They named it after... Um, the brilliant and not as well known as she should be, Joan Gans Cooney, the founder of Sesame Street and Sesame Workshop, otherwise known as the Children's Television Workshop. Anyway, so I was to form an R&;D lab to identify what's coming next, what, 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 didn't, what digital innovations could inform the early childhood development work of, of Sesame Street, but also it's the, a the, the field building you know, institution. So um, spent uh, a decade there um, doing a whole range of different uh, research projects. And um, I'm glad to talk about any, 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 any and all of those, but we, we definitely uh, met up along the
0: way. Well, Michael, what, what do you think you learned about um, early childhood development uh, uh, in your time at Sesame?
1: Yeah,
0: um, a ton about the use of
1: models and the use of um, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, immersive you know, media and immersive technologies to help um, young minds be shaped in a constructive and a constructivist sort of way. I think the main thing that worried me as um, the digital promise was introduced to younger and younger children, one of the uh, developers of the touchscreen at IDEO once told me that they didn't realize that the interactive touch um, screen was was uh, and, the, and, and the iPhone itself was designed perfectly for the fingers of a the three-year-old. They didn't realize that initially, but you know, you you didn't have to be a genius to you know sort of realize just what a game changer the interactive touch screen was for kids who couldn't navigate with a mouse or. Didn't have any literacy, you know. Didn't have any literacy skills yet. That uh, this touchscreen technology opened up the world to their fingertips. So, so what I learned at Sesame was sort of the power of the new digital technologies, but also, um, how shall I put it? The less constructive uses of digital technology for consumption in early childhood. The fact that so many, you know, profiteers. And product developers saw the marketplace, you know, pretty early on and began to develop things that were not evidence-based. And not that they were harmful, but you know, there were there there, there were lots of, I would say, um, less than true marketing claims made about the digital promise. And so what we were trying to do at the Cooney Center was sort all that out. The other thing that I think had changed was a lot of plain learn patterns in families so that parents who viewed the kind of brand equity and the educational equity built into things like Sesame or Nickelodeon, which is where I am now, or PBS, would park their kids without the scaffolding and the support that was needed. This happened also with television, with educational television, you no know, decades ago. But what I think we learned about the unique affordances of digital technologies was the ability to unite or connect generations in purpose. So I think that that's one of the big takeaways from the 10 years at Cooney Center was that we need to really advocate for designs that are intergenerational.
0: Uh, Michael, about a year and a half ago, uh, you joined Nickelodeon. What what was attractive about uh, the Noggin brand and the opportunity at Nick? Yeah, no. So for
1: many years at Sesame, we were doing, I I think, very, very strong work, especially know, internationally to kind of introduce the power of educational media to change lives. But we didn't have a distribution network that was built in. We had partners at PBS and partners at HBO and partners everywhere, but we didn't have the pipes to really distribute, you know, what it was that we were doing. It was always, you know, reliant on some other partner. Um, And in uh, thinking about kind of digital innovation there too, and personalization of the kinds of digital innovations for individual kids. We didn't have the architecture or the engineering to create the next generation of truly supportive, scaffolded um, digital technologies. But by coming to Noggin, which was originally a Sesame idea, by the way, your listeners might not know that, Sesame and Nickelodeon, Viacom, and the Henson Company came together in 1999 Right around the same time that you were thinking of the transformative ideas at Gates Foundation, they were thinking about the first online, anytime, anywhere, worldwide web-driven um, delivery system uh, called Noggin. Um, I won't get into all the history of Noggin and its its ascent and its decline, but suffice to say, within a few years, Sesame and Henson cashed out. They actually made a lot of money off of the deal. Another. Another sort of you know interesting story is that the money that Sesame made off of the early Noggin deal funded the use of the Muppets into perpetuity at Sesame Workshop. It's a n- nice little fun fact for your audience. Anyway, um, I was attracted to Noggin about a year and a half ago because I always wanted to create a digital age Sesame Street. Not that Sesame Street isn't doing good work in this area, but because they don't have their own you know pipes to distribute. Uh, I thought that a big broadcast, a big you know multiplex company um, like Nickelodeon, which is part of Viacom CBS, would be a good place to test out this idea of creating something that would be new and personalized. So we went to work. We've created a whole range of new resources and we're on a very steep growth path. thank, thank, thank goodness.
0: For for somebody who's not a a, a parent or a, a grandparent of toddlers like uh, like me, w- what is Noggin? What would uh, what could parents find there, and why would it be useful?
1: No, thanks for asking. So Noggin is Nick Junior um, uh, uh, preschool and early elementary school learning service. It has. All sorts of different educational content, which is you know briefed and developed by my educational and impact team. What distinguishes Noggin is the number of genres of content that are available. Some are interactive, like games and what we call play along videos. Nickelodeon is very well known for its popular characters, just like Sesame Street. We've got ours. We've got the Paw Patrol. We've got Dora the Explorer. We've got um, Blues, Clues, and You. We've got Santiago the Sea. So these are very pop culture iconic characters yeah. that
0: I, I can't tell you how many of those <laughs> I think I've watched all of those episodes. Yeah.
1: So I apologize to you for that, Tom. But the kids love it. Um, and so what we do is we take the IP as well as our own original production at Noggin and we array it in different kinds of educational sequences. I won't get into all the details, but suffice to say we've got a noggin learning framework which connects skills to knowledge. We're very, very big on background knowledge and the fact that you need to create interest-driven or passion-driven learning. It begins as young as two and three where kids love fashion or they love dinosaurs or they love oceans. Um, So we try to Tie our characters who are both through marketing and through learning science models and icons for our kids to deliver, you know, wholesome, but also I would call it fun and hard kinds of, you know, um, uh, learning experiences for them. During COVID, we've done a lot to kind of their, you know, consumption and engagement has risen, which as a child development expert concerns me. So talking to our parents and talking to our experts, we've created things for close listening skills like a whole new podcast series. We've created maker tools like art and music maker tools. We're adding a lot of stem sort of experimental work where our characters are doing hypotheses and you know um, you know learning about how kernels turn into popcorn or going to a farm and observing how, You know, farm to table actually influences a four-year-old. So we've been doing a lot of thinking about, um, you know, uh, the next generation of innovation, which is not consumption. And we've also been working quite a lot on um, recovery and resilience. So um, you'll see on Noggin today, if you're a parent, um, music. And you'll see on Noggin today, if you're a kid, um, more representation of who you are, because we are working with creators of color, in new and different ways, we just created a Hamilton for preschoolers uh, with uh, Chris Jackson of Hamilton, uh, George Washington, and Moana fame. We just uh, did a design competition, actually inspired by the work that you did at Gates, um, which has lasted you know decades, where you put a challenge out there, a grand challenge out there, and you don't use your own talent, you you know you crowdsource it and you see who comes in through the transom. So we created this new album called Big Heartbeats, which is all about social and emotional development and social justice education. And we got hundreds of submissions from creators of color uh, there. So we're experimenting, we're trying new things, we're partnering with charter school networks to see whether or not going forward, the curriculum of the place can be connected to the curriculum of the space, um, so there's a whole range of different things that we've been. We've been having some fun at Nagan because we're 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 a popular destination, but we've also been, I would say, um, you know, really affected by uh, all that's going on around us in the world.
0: you You must have seen a, a, a big uptick in uh, in viewership over the last year and a half. We did. We
1: grew. So we did a couple of things. I mean, first of all, we just made noggin available for everyone for free for the first you know few months of the pandemic, which, you know, was our wanting to be, you know, generous. It wasn't a bad marketing tool, also, I'll admit. Um, so we 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 grew over a hundred percent, you know, during the first you know, six months. Um, we're continuing to grow, but not at that pace. Um, we also decided to continue to give noggin away for free to tens of thousands of low-income families through Noggin Cares. Uh, A new version of Noggin Cares will be announced uh, in the fall as part of Back to School. We also launched new research on racial justice and inequality, which we've just begun to release in terms of the kinds of conversations that families need to have. And we're releasing a major study next month on um, risk and resilience during COVID, where we talk to a thousand low-income families about not just all the screw-ups that happened, you know, during COVID between home and school. But the new coping behaviors and the new assets that have been born, which I think are really, really important as we move forward.
0: Michael, I wonder, after thirty years in the nonprofit space, you know, and you're, I'd like you to reflect on your first two years in in the in the media business. Um, do, do you think you've been able to uh, to to both have a high bar for impact and Quality and and also hit uh, business metrics for profit. Yeah, it's
1: such a great question. As you suggested, I just had a government and nonprofit career to date, um, and I had some reservations about joining a big company, especially one that was going through its own merger. The moment that I was joining, um, Viacom and CBS were merging. But I, I have to say, like the CEO of Nickelodeon, who's you know my indirect you know boss Brian Robbins, is just had a vision and been amazingly supportive of the team, um, which is led by, you know, Kristin Kane, who um, you and I have known since, you know, the, the Department of Education days. So um, I think if you're a mission-driven company within another company that is mostly around entertainment, that there are challenges in translation and challenges in sort of explaining what you're doing, for sure. But um, there's also the resources and the leadership of the place, especially, you know, during the last year where purpose has become sort of, you know, central to everyone who's working within this company, where we're seen as the, you know, like not only the little engine that could, but the the group that is actually making a really huge difference with, you know, young families uh, on the educational side. So um, what we found to be true, which I didn't expect was... You know, yes, there are more clearance points and yes, things can move more slowly than the kind of startups that you and I have been involved in mentoring. But the scale of impact that we can have and the resources that we can, you know, command and deploy are, are very, very significant. So it's still a little bit of a long shot. Like I look for three things when I join a new enterprise. One, can I learn a lot? Check, like I'm learning a ton. I've never made, you know, content for kids before. Two, do I like the team that I'm working with? Are they smart to do, to, you know, like, can I engage, you know, with them? And we've got an amazing, you know, team. Three, can you make a really big difference in the world? We'll see. That's our aim. It's, it's, it's a little bit of a long shot, but you know, what did Margaret Mead say? We've got a small team and that's the only thing that'll change the world.
0: Michael, uh, this podcast and our practice here at Getting Smart is really about innovations and learning. Um, I I wonder, as we begin to come out of this pandemic, we begin to think about uh, the the next school year, how how do you think about the innovation uh, opportunity when it comes to learning and development, particularly for younger children?
1: Yeah, it's risky business. We've been through a lot, and we need to recognize that first. Um, and there will be kind of natural resistance to change, even though everything has changed this last year, not everything, but a lot of things have changed this last year. So, um, I am a little bit worried that those who try to innovate will be less bold than they need to be. And that we'll see a lot of old wine in new bottles that, you know, the, the worksheets and, you know, the story time, you know, teacher reading the book know, over the internet will, you know, just sort of be ported, you know, back into the classroom. Early childhood has been really resistant and often with good reason to the use of technology because technology can become an electronic babysitter, as you know. Um, Sometimes we need 20 minutes to take a shower or get a meal and a dose of, you know, noggin or sesame is definitely indicated, but... In thinking about blended learning systems and personalized learning systems of the future, early childhood educators have a ways to go. And I think that we're getting really close, Tom, to be able to do some different things. So one of the things that we did during the during COVID, which was, you know, in many respects a failure, was to align the noggin curriculum with a validated early childhood curriculum from the apple tree charter school network and connected to a family strengthening application called sparkler. So we put together a really dynamic trio of resources that families could use during COVID and then, um, the uptake was weaker than we would have expected because of implementation difficulties. Lots of families were stressed out and weren't able to get online or Their kids, you know, were sharing devices with three other children. And it's just, you know, this was a very, very, very hard year. So um, I think early childhood development has both um, uh, the capacity to innovate because there's kind of less structure there. There's more degrees of freedom to innovate because there's less of a system. But also they've got the, the challenge of not having both technical and intellectual resources to use technology yet. And so I, I do think there's a, like a really big opportunity for um, social entrepreneurs. And I would count our company as sort of a social entrepreneur in this space to come up with new things that could scale in the future.
0: With uh, with all the spending that's happening around recovery and the talk about a, an infrastructure bill, I fear that early learning is... Uh, being left behind. It feels like uh, one layer of infrastructure America needs is uh, broader and better access to high quality early learning and development. Do you uh, you have any thoughts on what what you'd like to see America uh, do in this decade to extend access to quality early learning?
1: Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I mean, first of all, um, I think what we've learned from from COVID is that we do need a technological infrastructure. So the work you know, that um, the FCC and you know, Biden and other you know, advocates are doing around digital equality will benefit families with young children. Um, the new study that's coming out on June 24th from New America, Rutgers, and supported by Noggin and Carnegie on digital inequality will speak to um, the fact that so many families are still underconnected. connected so, That, like, if the conferees in the Senate think that the infrastructure bill for America should not include technology infrastructure, they're sadly mistaken. That is absolutely essential. In terms of early childhood development, I mean, I alluded to this in the last, you know, answer. I do think that the new administration and a number of governors, you know, including, you know, your governor in Colorado, governors in California, governors... You know, in in other parts of the country, in 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 um, in, in Florida, have really invested a lot um, in early childhood, you know, development through universal pre K, you know, programs. But the the glue that's needed from the federal, um, you know, government and the expansion that's needed to ensure that all three and four year olds have access to you know preschool is um, you know a hundred billion or more you know proposition that Biden has suggested we need and has proposed that we need, but we'll see whether or not that is something that actually gets passed. So we need we, we need a system starting at age three of universal access to, to preschool for sure. And then beyond that, I would say um, what's really missing is kind of uh, a set of program models that meet the needs of today's families. Most of the things that you see the long-term cost-benefit research indicating works for early childhood, Perry Preschool, Episcodarian, the work that James Heckman has done at University of Chicago through the Heckman equation. That's all based on programs that were designed in the 60s and 70s. And things like, you know, the Parent Child Centers or Head Start, which have scaled since then, need a big modernization movement. They need to have much more of an emphasis on personalization. They need to have much more of an emphasis on assessment and outcomes. And they need to have a laser focus on professional development and professional pathways. All those things exist in fits and starts, but I would say we've got to really radically upgrade both the, um, the, 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 the human capital within the early childhood system, not that the folks who are working in it aren't committed and terrific human beings, but there does need to be an upgrading and a pathway, you know, up from the, from, from the, the, the lowest level of credential to the advanced, you know, kind of if you think about the innovations in brain science and epigenetics over the last decade, and the kind of knowledge that you actually need to know in order to teach kids to to read or kid to teach kids early um, social emotional development skills, it is more like neuroscience and more like rocket science. We need the most trained, the most capable educators in early childhood, and the business model doesn't doesn't currently work.
0: Uh, Michael, that reminds me of, uh, DigiLearn, a nonprofit where we both serve on the board. Uh, you and I serve with three former governors. <laughs> we're, so, we, we're, we're honored to serve with a, a great group that is trying to advance, uh, next generation professional learning for educators. So thanks for serving on that board. Uh, thanks to everybody for listening uh, to the podcast today. We've been, uh, talking to Michael Levine. We appreciate his leadership in uh, early learning and digital media. Uh, Michael, our conversation reminded me of a recent chat that we had uh, with Greg Barron and Ryan Rozeski, the authors of When You Wonder, You're Learning, a, a great uh, book uh, that's a tribute to Mr. Rogers and, uh, and, and Fred Rogers' leadership in, uh, in early childhood it's a, ter- it's a terrific
1: book, Tom, and if people want to learn just a little bit more about early literacy and the promise and, you know, I guess moderate impact of technology to date, they can pick up the book that I wrote with Lisa Guernsey. It's called Tap, Click, Read, Growing Readers in a World of Screens. Thanks.
0: Great. And we'll uh, we'll link to that in the show notes. Michael, what a treat to catch up. Thanks for joining us. It was a... Pleasure. And um,
1: you reminded me of so many things in our checkered past, Tom Van Der Ark. Thanks so much for uh, inviting me to join you.
0: It's been great to be with you. Thanks, everybody, for listening and uh, keep learning and keep innovating.